The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Sean Ellis, co-author of Hacking Growth, How Today's Fastest Growing Companies Drive Breakout Success, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if you're listening to the show right now and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery, please hop on Twitter and tell us where in the world you're listening from. My Twitter handle is marketingbook. Today, we welcome Sean Ellis to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new book he's co-authored with Morgan Brown, Hacking Growth, How Today's Fastest Growing Companies Drive Breakout Success. Sean Ellis is the CEO and co-founder of growthhackers.com, the number one online community built for growth hackers with nearly 2 million users worldwide. Sean coined the term growth hacking to describe the process used by agile growth companies and is the producer of the Growth Hackers Conference. He coined that term back in 2010, by the way. He regularly speaks to startups all the way to Fortune 100s and has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Wired, Fast Company, Inc.com, TechCrunch, and now the Marketing Book Podcast. And interesting fact, between Sean, his wife, and his two daughters, they were all born on different continents. Sean, congratulations on hacking growth and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Douglas. I'm, I'm really excited to be on. So on this podcast, I've interviewed the author of the book Hacking Sales by Max Altshuler. <laughs> you probably uh-huh. know him. And Hacking Marketing by Scott Brinker from Chief Martech. And now I'm interviewing you, the co-author of Hacking Growth. So if there are any other books out there with the word hacking in the title, by podcast law, I am going to be required to interview them for the show. <laughs> so I think we've, we've marked off most of the uh, potential ones, but who knows what somebody else can come up with. Yeah, yeah. In fact, Pete, my colleague here at work, he was saying that maybe I should write a book and call it Hacking Hacking. Nice. <laughs> Very so, meta. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It would probably be rather short. At any rate, well, let me just jump into an excerpt from page 13, and we'll uh, get talking about the book here. You said, normally, Sean, I'll ask, well, why'd you write the book? Well, I like the way you answered this question on page 13. We decided to write this book because we saw both the enormous potential for growth hacking for all types of businesses, and because we perceive the pressing need for a better understanding of the process and a guide to the best practices for implementing it. Growth hacking is a fundamental new approach to market development with enormous power, but the truth of how it should be managed for optimal effect is, as of yet, poorly understood. So before we go any further, please, the elevator explanation, what is growth hacking? Because I guarantee there's some folks that are listening who maybe have heard of it, but just 
haven't spent much time with it. What is it? So growth hacking is, it's about experimentation. So uh, lots of experimentation and doing it not just where marketers tend to normally focus in the channels, but doing it across the entire customer journey. And ideally having a metric that's a, a value metric that reflects the you know, value that the customers are getting from the product so that you're optimizing to increase that metric. Okay. And in the, the second part of the book, you, you talk about, you know, it's not just acquiring customers, it's, it's getting them activated mm-hmm. and re- retaining them and then <laughs> monetizing them and, you know, rinse and repeat. Now, as it relates to growth hacking, you know what? I may be the only guy, but I think there's a certain amount of BS out there about growth hacking, meaning well, I've met two people in the last year or two who had that on their LinkedIn profile. I'm a growth hacker and I've gotten to know them. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure they know what's in this book. <laughs> and so <laughs> going forward, I, when I meet somebody who says, yeah, I'm a growth hacker, I'm going to say, have you read Hacking Growth? Okay, that's going to be my litmus test for a long time. But I, I mean, are there, are there charlatans out there? Have those the only two? And what are, <laughs> so, what are some of the misperceptions of what growth hacking is? Right. So uh, probably the, the most normal misperception is that people – People just think of it as sort of clever hacks and tricks or even just clever marketing. And, and it's not just like kind of on the edges. There, there's actually people that are out speaking about growth hacking all the time that, that start their presentations with growth hacking is all about clever marketing. And then they give you a list of 800 really clever things that people have done. Do you die a little <laughs> bit inside when you hear that? I do. It kills me because it's it's just reinforcing reinforcing this this perception that it's uh, it's all about you know tricks and I can see how people would think that because what they're doing is that they're looking at the end result where companies that are running lots of experiments sometimes the things that work and the ones that really get noticed are do do look like pretty clever tricks for growing a business, but, but that happened by testing a whole bunch of things. And more often than not, the things that you test don't actually work. And so, you know, and, and, and most of the things that do work are not really all that interesting. It's, it's making the onboarding process a little simpler, addressing a key issue that someone has as they're, as they're trying to try a product for the first time. And it's, it's not as sexy as some of the people try to make it out to be, but, um, but ultimately, in my opinion, it's a it's just a much more effective way to grow a business, and so it's it's worth worth paying attention to. But it's uh, it's it's not worth paying attention to because it's overly exciting in terms of <laughs> what the what the individual hacks are. Yeah, it's funny. As I read the book, I was noticing certain things that I'd you know, analogies. And my my wife, some years ago, maybe ten plus years ago, she was really into sailboat racing, and you know, she had these racing sailboats and all that. And, and like maybe once or twice a year, she'd take us out on the boat, and we couldn't enjoy it because she was obsessed with getting the sail trim just just perfect. You know, it was like a, a right. real perfectionist sort of thing. And it was it, it just reminded me of that. It was just constant tinkering, constant testing. You know, just just that type of thing. But let's talk about this lightning in a bottle, you know, because I think that I agree that people could see some things like Pinterest or LinkedIn or Airbnb or Uber and just think, oh, that's that's genius. But the, the fact is, and you talk about it in the book, those weren't just breakout successes. I mean, they, they went through a lot of these. They had some rough times getting started, and then they finally 
stumbled on a few things that, that started working for him. Can you talk about one of those? Yeah. I mean, so like I think Airbnb is a, is a classic one. We, we all do know that Airbnb, the Craigslist hack is, is a really like well-known one at this point, but I'll, I'll say it for those people who don't know it. It's just, it's kind of classic intuition and, and uh, empathy for the customer. They knew that people who were doing short-term rentals before Craigslist evolved, I mean, sorry, before Airbnb evolved, we're mostly doing it on Craigslist. And they, it was about trying to figure out how do they tap into Craigslist. And so initially, they found ways to, to recruit some of the people who were posting on, on Craigslist to post their properties also on uh, Airbnb. So some people kind of could look at that as, as, as a bit of a spammy tactic, because um, they are going out and contacting people through another platform. And then Later on, a more scalable thing that they did was once people listed property on Airbnb, they automatically reposted it onto Craigslist. So, so it amplified that listing and, and led a lot more people back with links back to Airbnb, led a lot more people back to uh, Airbnb to, to look at properties and ultimately sign up for them. So I think that was something that is the lightning in the bottle one. But, but one of the things that... But it was so rare that you mentioned it in your book. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it, it is I, I think it's it's important, but it's also important to know that Airbnb couldn't get funding for a long time. They worked really hard to just try to get, you know, prime the pump at all to get to, to get anyone using the service. They uh they had to sell cereal in the early days uh just to make ends meet. So like they 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 did something. Uh, I just finished the upstart, so I got. I just read some of the uh, some of the the stories of what Airbnb did in the early days, where they were selling Obama O's cereal just just to kind of make ends meet during the election. Well, I think they were hungry too at one point. <laughs> that's yeah, all they had to oh, eat. Yeah, exactly, and then they just and they ate it. But what you see kind of later on, some of the things that Airbnb did to really drive growth in the business was that they they started to see that certain properties were were doing better than other properties and they really decided to go and, and try to understand that. So so one of their investors told them that they should move to New York City, which was sort of their hub of activity at the time, and really spend some time with customers. Whether they moved there, they just spent a lot of time there. I think they, they actually stayed in Airbnbs, so they, they really got uh, in tight with the customers and they realized that the quality of the pictures was a huge part of what drove what drove interest in properties. And so they went out and looked like they'd hired professional photographers, but they had really good camera equipment and went out and took these professional photos and started to find that doing doing their own photos on other properties that didn't have high quality photos significantly increased the interest in those properties. And then from there, they, they scaled it out to where they brought in professional photographers and it was a service they could offer. But that's one of those things that's maybe a little less sexy, but really, really important in the overall growth of that business. And so it's about kind of figuring out these playbooks as you as you grow into different markets. And a lot of, you know, we, we don't know too much about the experiments that didn't work because they don't really talk about those. But I'm sure that there were a ton of experiments along the way that didn't work. And in my experience, uh, I, I don't think I've worked with a company that has had over a 50% success rate on experiments. Usually it's, it's quite a bit lower than that. So that's, it's really through that experimentation that you start to, to figure out how to grow. I guess there's one other piece that I should really emphasize here though, that it's not, it's not just random experimentation at, at different points in the customer journey, but it's, it's understanding ultimately 
what constitutes a great experience with a product and, and understanding that on a, on a very deep level, what's the key benefit behind that experience? How can you start to really measure and quantify the growth of that experience? So kind of average number of people are hitting that experience or number of people hitting that experience times the average uh, amount of the experience that they're getting so that you are ultimately, when you're running tests, you're trying to expand this this key metric, which in the growth hacking world, we call the, the North Star metric. Right. So let me ask you something. You, you know, we talk about growth and how this helps companies find growth. And so I want to talk to you about how it's actually an antidote to these major stalls, these growth stalls that companies have. But to marketing, you you talk about how this is a, you know, helps companies achieve great growth without pouring money into outdated and horribly expensive marketing campaigns of questionable business value. How bad has the crisis of traditional marketing become? Well, so I mean, one of the things that's, that's interesting in the area where I've focused on has been super early stage companies where there's a lot of, not a lot of noise that's happening. So you can, you can isolate cause and effect of growth a lot more around the, the different things you're doing. I think there's a lot of money that's wasted on, on big, fast-moving consumer goods companies that are spent, you know, th- for them to be able to isolate down to these dollars were spent to drive, you know, someone to go in and, and pick a Budweiser instead of a Coors in, in the 7-Eleven. It's really hard to connect those dots. And there's probably some some art and some science in that. But I, I think there's probably a lot of waste that happens there. But I, I'm not even really trying to address that. Most of my early, most of my focus myself has been in companies that are really just trying to get off the ground. And for those companies, what was interesting is I used to have a lot of CEOs coming to me and asking for my help to grow their businesses, but they didn't come in and say, can you help me grow the business? They said, can you help me build awareness? That was, that ah. was their kind of opening, <laughs> opening line. And I looked at them and I was like, you know, you've, you've raised $1.2 million <laughs> and you, you think you can buy your way into awareness. It's just, it's just not realistic. Or you think you can maybe get PR to get the awareness. That's not realistic. What I had found in my experience with, with log me in and Dropbox and some of these other companies was where that you worked, I should add. Yeah. Where I, where I'd spent, so I spent five years customer zero to, to the IPO listing at log me in growing that customer base. So I was able to, to see it all the way through. And then some other companies I did just the, the beginning part. So the first six months in, in interim VP marketing roles. And what I found is that the only real lasting impact from customer acquisition and marketing efforts was when you delivered experiences to people that the average person see the, the number that I hear quoted a lot is the uh, average person sees 3000 advertisements per day. And so on a little marketing budget from a startup, there's no way that your one advertisement is going to get noticed and remembered. And you know, over time, you're going to build up awareness for your product that way. But most people only have maybe one or two new experiences per day or even per week with products. And so if you can get people to actually have an experience with the product, you're much more likely to get them to stick around. If you can have them have a, an experience that's actually a really valuable experience, then, then not only will they stick around, but they'll actually advocate on behalf of the product. And so that was the kind of very different approach from building awareness for the product. When I went in and worked with these companies, it was, 
we need to we need to understand what that core experience is and get as many people to that core valuable experience as possible and hopefully do it in a way that we, we see a return on investment on those dollars. So it's not just if we're going to spend money, let's spend money with a with a positive return on investment. And then if, even better, if we can figure out ways that that don't require spending money to grow the business, then uh, then could get really great growth. Yeah, and that's music to the CEO's ears. But it's it's funny how the they come to you saying, "I need awareness," and they want this like one PR article or something is just yearning. I guess it's a human thing, yearning <laughs> for this silver bullet or this one diet pill that's going to make you lose a hundred pounds. It's just it's going to be a blip on the radar. It's not really going to do much for you. The other term I hear often is, "We just need to get our our name out there." Right. <laughs> and my response is usually, no, you're gonna, you need to do much better than that with what the money you have. Now, before we get to, because uh, I want to ask you about must-have and aha moments, because this is, I think, really important for marketing folks. Can you tell the story of Annabelle Satterfield? Because I think this is really very revealing of where marketers could be finding themselves and becoming very successful. Sure. So Annabelle's story and my story are, are really similar. So when I when I heard about Annabelle's story, I was felt like deja vu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, thought, I thought there was a similarity there. Yeah, so so for both of us, we came in with the with the task of growing customers. In her case, it was for BitTorrent, and she just like I at at log me in. I, I knew that you know, just what you do in the cust- in the customer acquisition channels is not going to be enough. You need to get the landing pages right and the rest of the experience going in. She was looking at for BitTorrent the same thing that that it's it's not just driving installs but it's actually driving value from those installs and so one of the things that was interesting was that she she kind of made that pitch and she was told well as soon as you drive impact on your marketing spend then you will earn the right to come in and and start to do some of the lower funnel things yeah. <laughs> and so when I looked at that, like I, I look at just really a quick counterpoint to, to my experience with that at Log Me In, I was having trouble making impact on customer acquisition efforts because we had such a bad funnel. So if I had been given that opportunity, I probably would have failed. And, and today, Log Me In is a $5 billion company, but I was able to, to make the case to the CEO that with we're spending $10,000 a month. I can't expand beyond that in, with a positive return on investment. And the reason is that majority of people who sign up for Log Me In never use the product. And our return on investment comes when they use the product. That's when they're going to upgrade to the premium. That's when they're going to tell their friends about it. Like everything is, is, is based on that. But that sits in the product department and I don't have I don't have access to that. Yeah, it's like you were saying, we've got to do more than just get these customers in the store. <laughs> right, right. And so fortunately for me at Log Me In, I had a CEO who understood what I was saying, made it a company-wide priority to get that first user experience right. Once we got our activation number way up, once we got signups who actually used the product, we were able to get about a 10x increase in people who used the product for that same $10,000 that we were spending after we optimized that experience quite a bit. Now I went back to the previous channels that hadn't scaled beyond 10,000 and they scaled to over a million dollars a month with a three month payback on that investment. So basically saying you have to be successful with acquisition before you can start to get access deeper in the funnel just really didn't make sense. So when I read that, I was like, poor, poor Annabelle. 
but she was able to actually get some some opportunity to go deeper in the funnel. I don't remember like all the details of her story. You might mention a couple things that jumped out to you, but but one of the things that I do remember from her story is that they were having a really hard time getting people to upgrade to the premium version of BitTorrent and they didn't know what the cause was for that. And they thought they were promoting it well. They just thought maybe the value proposition wasn't good or the price was too much. But she just did a survey to the users and asked them, why, you know, the free users, why did you decide not to upgrade to the uh, premium version? And she got back the answer from a big chunk of the users that they didn't even know that there was a premium version. Right. And so I don't mean to laugh, but it was just, it was that amazing. Yeah. And so basically just on, on a single, like with that insight, then they were able to just basically make it more obvious that there was a premium version and they had almost an overnight 90% increase in sales. So that bought her the credibility then to do a lot more in funnel things. And she actually ended up moving from the marketing team to actually the mobile team where, where she focused long-term and, and working more across that full customer journey on on mobile but it's it's hard to break into you know m- many of the most powerful levers of growth sit in the product organization but they're not they're just they don't generally have the same mindset that marketers do about experimentation and seeing the results and uh, driving towards some some actual value metrics they're they're more kind of visionaries about the product and yeah you talked about how Annabelle's story was the exception rather than the rule of most companies yeah and I think most of us marketers understand that these levers of growth sit deeper in the funnel and we don't have access to them right um, and so a lot of the inspiration that I've gotten in how to more effectively as a team work across across that customer journey to run experimentation has come from companies like Facebook and, and Uber now. And LinkedIn and Facebook were really kind of the two pioneers with the, with the idea of this cross-functional growth team and basically having that cross-functional growth team running experiments to improve their North Star metric. For, in the case of Facebook, it was just increasing uh, daily active users and knowing that the more active users on the system, the more value every other user was getting in the system. And so across the entire company, that was the metric they were trying to improve. And this cross-functional growth team played a really key role in managing the experimentation to to increase that metric. Yeah, and I think just another thought I had was that one of the reasons this book is exciting is because I, I follow with great interest these companies where you're starting to see more, let's say, chief marketing officers who are becoming the CEOs. And it's because they are, as you would see in this book, Hacking Growth, and you just described all the way through the funnel, they, they start to really understand where the revenue levers are. And that's why it doesn't seem like it's that much more of a leap now to go from the head of marketing to the head of the, <laughs> to the, head of the company, because you, right. you are then familiar with all those things throughout the funnel. And another example of a, a, a challenge for, for marketers is you know this experience. You've talked about it. I've had at least a dozen really fantastic books on the show about engineering a great customer experience. But yet, most companies, the marketing people aren't in charge of you know, everything associated with the customer's experience, and they probably won't be, but in, maybe until they become a CEO. You know, I, I gave a talk recently, and I was talking about this Fournay's group study that came out a few years ago about how only like 20% of CEOs 
trust their marketing people and 80% don't, meaning mm-hmm. because they're too disconnected from the financial realities. And now some of it's because some of the marketers are arts and crafts party planners who work in the make it pretty <laughs> department. But I think mm-hmm. a large number of them are simply not allowed, like Annabelle, to, to get further into the business until they can somehow luckily prove themselves, you know, they can affect the whole journey. Can I actually address a little bit of what you just said there? Because I sure. think there's something Feel free to, to disagree. That- yeah, no, I actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree, but I'm going to uh, probably attribute the problem to something else that I actually think the worst thing that ever happened to me as a marketer was when I decided to become a qualified marketer and start to pick up traditional marketing books. And <laughs> I, I went and I took a strategic marketing management course at NYU. This was, this was in my first role. I just somehow found my way into a VP of marketing role at this internet company and had no experience marketing. And so I, I decided to pick up, you know, this course and read some books on it. And for about a four or six week period, my marketing went to hell because I started thinking about what are marketers supposed to do. And I stopped thinking about what is the result that I'm trying to drive and how do I do the things that are going to drive that result. And so I think that's a big part of the problem for marketers is that there's just so much information out there about what a marketer is supposed to do that the that the expectations, a lot of times, and they come from CEOs where they're like, well, we've got to get the right marketing mix. And, the, and they're, they're kind of... Uh, they're kind of testing their marketer to see how well-rounded they are in, in the marketing skill set where you know, so many of those marketing skills just don't have a direct, fast impact to, to the sustainability of the company and the value delivered to users. And that, that, to me, is really kind of what we're trying to do with this book is provide a, a, a breakdown of things that have that direct impact on you know, retained customers, on, on acquiring customers that actually stick around in the system and become valuable customers. And um, that's, that's, I think, part of the problem. Amen a thousand times. And also, I think that there is uh, yet another thing at play here. I I like to talk about there's like a hundred years of marketing muscle memory that's still very much there for in in companies. And they think of it as more of a, a different thing, more of a promotion. They think of marketing as promotion. They think of it as more of a megaphone rather than the things that are that are laid out in your book. And I have a friend who teaches marketing at the PhD level, and you know, he he said, "Yeah, it's all we can do to keep up." He said, "Well, he said some of the tenured professors don't really care; they want to keep teaching marketing and advertising from 1985." But <laughs> most of them are trying to keep up. And I said, "Hey, John, look, <laughs> businesses are trying to keep up here, so that's very true." Yeah, and I, I think one of my big advantages in that first company was that I had invested everything I had into that company, even though I was hired into the business, I had done an angel investment where I put everything I had into the company. And so I didn't have time to, or or the desire to just focus on perception of doing a good job. I was really worried about the business going out of business and not only losing my job, but losing, losing all the money I'd invested into the company. And so I think, I think that helped me to probably have more of that CEO mindset that you talk about that, that marketers are increasingly uh, developing now. You took the words out of my mouth. There was another book that's been on the show recently called The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader and by a, a former McKinsey partner and a professor. And they talk about all this massive study they did of marketers. And the really successful ones 
have what they call the CEO mindset, which also means they're very tied into the financial aspects. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's really, really clear. So when you said you had a CEO mindset, I would <laughs> say you were blessed with a CEO mindset at that early stage. And most, most don't have that. Yeah. So what's, what's kind of interesting is that I actually think that the, that the reverse is also true, that the complexities of marketing that pull so many marketers down the paths of all things marketers could do. And, and we kind of do it as, as marketers. I mean, I've, I've tried to avoid it, but you know, pe- people get into our business. Marketing is somewhat accessible. And so the more jargon we can throw out there, hopefully that, that keeps, keeps other departments from thinking that they are marketers. But what I, what I found at Dropbox in the early days, I was the first non-engineer on the team. There was only 10 people there. And what I found was that by, by boiling everything down to the essence of what is important for growth in the business, like from, from customer value to what's that customer discovery process and onboarding and how do, you, how do you grow a retained customer base, I was able to really engage the engineers in that process and have them be really active participants, especially, you know, there were, there were some doubts when we first started, but once they saw the power of an A-B test and that this really did lead to this important metric and result in the business, engineers tend to have a pretty good numbers-driven approach to doing things. And so what was great is that I got, you know, it was, was really their engineering founder, CEO, and myself leading a lot of these efforts, but I was only there for six months. And so in those six months, our goal was to make it so that it was a metrics and experiment-driven culture. And they were already very very focused on creating a great customer experience. So that, that part was something they had before I got there. But being able, to, being able to really help them think about how to connect a lot more people into that experience. When I left six months later, it took another nine months to replace me uh, with, with a new marketing person in the company. And so for those nine months, it was really the engineers that managed growth. And they, they published their uh, metrics just in the last couple of months their growth trajectory of new users in in the history of the business. It was with a with a graphic that showed they're the fastest SaaS company to reach the one billion dollar revenue run rate, and they didn't miss a beat during those nine months where they didn't have a marketer on the team. That the the engineers were, could follow a process and act on that process so well that they that they built great momentum in the business to where when they brought another marketer on the team, that marketer could bring some additional insights and, and map into that process instead of trying to, to change and replace it. That is so amazing to hear. And you know, I'm meeting more and more people with engineering degrees who are in marketing. It's crazy. Let's go ahead. I want to ask a couple other questions. I just think are really, really helpful for the marketers who are listening in. You, you explain that you, know, you shouldn't be doing any kind of ambitious growth scaling until you've determined whether the product you're bringing to market or the one you have is either a must-have or just okay, but can live without. Explain more about this must-have. And, and you even talk about a couple of two questions you often use to help companies figure that out. Yeah, so this was something that I figured out pretty, pretty early as I, as I started taking on these six-month roles. I, I basically started to kind of reverse engineer my own failure. You know, started thinking, okay, at the end of six months, if I fail, what is going to be the cause? Is it going to be because I didn't work hard enough? No, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to put in whatever efforts needed. But ultimately, if nobody gives a crap about the product that's been created, 
I'm screwed. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to grow this business. And so what I then did in the very beginning, even I eventually did it before I signed on with companies, was I would ask the existing users on a product how they would feel if they could no longer use the product. And I was looking for people who said, uh, I gave them a multiple choice question. First answer was very disappointed, then somewhat disappointed, then not disappointed or uh, not applicable. I don't use this anymore. And I was looking for people who picked very disappointed with the, with the thinking that if they say I would be somewhat disappointed, and, and of course there was a bunch of CEOs who, who said, yay, we have 87% of the people say they'd be somewhat disappointed without our product, like it was a, some successful thing. I said, <laughs> They're just being nice. Yeah, I said, sorry, we have to ignore those people completely. For those people, you are a nice to have. Let's focus on the 15% or 20% or ideally a higher percent than that that say they would be very disappointed without the product. And those people hold the keys to ultimately building a sustainable business. So figuring out what is the primary benefit that those people are getting? How do we get more people to reach that experience that that makes it a must have? And so for for me, it's really, you know, until you have a sufficient number of new users that are getting to that point, you're wasting a lot of energy and resources trying to grow your user base if if you don't have a sufficient number of users that get to that point. So it's it's really this kind of ruthless prioritization that needs to happen where maybe you're sending some new people into the business. So, so you're, you're maybe still spending $10,000, $20,000 a month, or if you're really small, maybe maybe 1000 or less. Um, but you're, you're not doing it with the purpose to grow yet. You're doing it with the purpose to learn how to make a growable business. And so first part is, is there enough product value there to sustain growth over time? And then once there is, then, then you're using that flow of people to, to get some of the low-hanging fruit out of the conversion funnel and make sure that you have at least a somewhat good process of onboarding into the business. And then going forward from there, that's where you can start to try to decide, do we, are we better off investing even more into the onboarding or should we shift some of our focus and resources now to more customer acquisition or even, so you have a core great product experience that drives retention and referral, but then on top of that, are there some tactical things that we should be driving should be doing to drive even more uh, retention and referrals. So, you know, notifications that remind people to check out the app if something new gets added, if it's a, if it's an app, for example, or a prompt to drive referral if if it contextually makes sense to do that. But um, Right, right. Well, so in defense of the marketers out there, it seems like it's when they come to this realization that there's the product is a is an okay to have, but it's not a must have, is that like telling somebody your baby's ugly? I mean, how do they go back into the organization and say, we don't have a must-have. <laughs> it seems like there'd be a lot of CEOs that say, you just do your marketing thing, okay? <laughs> right. And if I'm that marketer, there's a good chance that I say, well, get in contact with me when you've got a must-have. For the time being, I'm going to go out and work on a business where I can actually help it be successful, <laughs> um, yeah. which is a hard, hard decision to make. But that's that's part of, part of why I even came up with that question, because I... I actually told companies when I was doing these interim VP marketing roles that, hey, if you're if you're not high enough on this metric, you're going to waste money if you want me to help you grow it. It's way cheaper for you to keep the team small, focus on getting the product right, 
and then bring me in once you have validated that the product is is resonating with enough people. And so it was a good way of being able to not hurt the egos of founders and CEOs in these in these early businesses. It's not your baby's ugly. It's just your baby's not ready yet. <laughs> right, right. Your baby Still needs to learn to walk first. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So the first question was, how disappointed would you be if this product no longer existed tomorrow? Yeah, or some, something along those lines. How, yeah. how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? And actually, that's also a little uh, a little hack for content marketers. Uh, where they, you know, they say, well, is our is our email good? Well, if you if your like newsletter, e- your email newsletter, if people would miss it, then you know it's good. Or right. if you stopped publishing your content, would people miss it? That's that's a litmus test. So the second question, it's very uh, the two part assessment is, what is your product's retention rate? Why is that such an important question? Right. So so uh, what is the primary benefit that you've received from this product? That's the way that I ask that second question. And for for those people, what I'm trying to do is I, I actually started as an open ended question. So. A lot of this is kind of just good practice of getting out of your own head and your own assumptions. Like the more that you lead the witness, the more likely they're going to tell you the answer that you that you want to get. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so being able to just say an open-ended question, what is the primary benefit that you've gotten from this product? And then start to find those recurring themes that I, I generally try to boil that down into three or four key benefit statements. And this, interestingly, this process is something that I got out of a marketing course. So there's still some valuable stuff being taught, but it was just a beat up on our academic friends. Right. So this was a marketing course at the Harvard extension school, a guy who used to run research for one of the big uh, Madison Avenue agencies. This process has been super valuable for me around the benefit. It's basically giving them the choice of, you know, benefit a benefit B benefit C or benefit D, but you want to make them distinct enough so that, um, so you're not kind of splitting the vote on a couple of benefits that sound kind of the same. And then, and then what I do based on the people who've picked say benefit a, now I just look only at those people and I say, what percentage of those people would be very disappointed without the product. And so I'm trying to see what is that one benefit statement that when people use it that way and get that benefit, it's, an overwhelming must have for, for the number of people. Sometimes what you find out is that there's only like 5% of the people that pick that. And it's, it's like 80% would be very disappointed without it. In that case, in that case, maybe it's like a really passionate user base that you could get, but it's pretty niche. So you have to make a strategic decision. Do we want to be broader appeal and maybe slightly less passionate customers or that really narrow, highly passionate customer appeal? But Generally, being able to find that must-have benefit. What, what's really cool now, where I've where I've actually plugged it in on a company who, yeah, I, I said that I asked this question before I worked with companies, but I didn't always do that way. For for a couple of companies, I asked it in the in the beginning, and then uh, was already committed for six months to realize, oh crap, it's <laughs> this is this is a product that doesn't really resonate much with the users. So. For one company, I asked the question initially, and only 7% of the users said they'd be very disappointed without the product. And that's, that's where I hit the yo crap moment. But those 7% gave such strong signal on a different way they were using the product than the other 93% that simply by updating the messaging around the benefit that these guys were, were getting and then updating the onboarding of the of the product to to really fast track them into the experience that delivered on that messaging 
we were able to, in about a two and a half week period, get the next cohort of users. So the next group of users who signed up were over 40% saying they'd be very disappointed without the product. It's really amazing. And we're, and we're not even scratching. I'd like to say we're just scratching the surface. We're not even doing that in this interview, but we're kind of running out of time. I wanted to ask one other question about one thing in the book that I think would be of great interest to the marketers. You talk about customer acquisition, just on that one chapter about customer acquisition. And it's more than mm-hmm. just customer acquisition, listener. So <laughs> don't right. think that's it. But there's two types of fit. One of them is channel product fit, but the other one's language market fit. Can you explain what that is, language market fit? Yeah, so there's there's a good example we talk about in the book from a company called Tickle, where they were originally talking about their website from a language perspective of a place where you store photos. And they ended up seeing, I, I don't know how they necessarily came to the conclusion that it was better to say, you know, treat Tickle as a place where you share photos. But somehow they came to the realization that that, that was a test worth running. And as soon as they ran that test, they were able to see a significant increase in not just, again, people signing up for the product, but both signing up for the product, continuing to use it because it really delivered well on that benefit. And even better, because it was share in the description, they started sharing a lot more. And I don't remember what the number specifically was, but I think they got to like 60 million users in about a year. And when they had actually been stalling on the you know, store your photo message before, and it was, it was fundamentally the same product, it just, just by getting the language right, they were able to really open that up into, into a big opportunity. It's like reading the stories in the book. It's like learning about this one linchpin that got inserted. <laughs> it pulled the whole thing together. But, right. but it wasn't just the first one. It's like compound interest where you're just constantly testing. And you also said earlier, the takeaway is that it's not throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. There's a real strategic approach to what you should test and mm-hmm. what you need to put off. And it's all explained in the book there. So let me ask you, that if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Yeah, the one thing that I would recommend that, that readers really try to take away from the book is that value drives growth and testing the more tests you run is going to increase your ability to get people to that value. So more tests is better than less tests. Every test leads to learning, but make sure that those tests are done with an eye on getting people to the valuable experience in your product. Yes, and there is a lot of learning and think there may, just from reading the book, there may have been a perception out there that, oh, if a test doesn't lead to growth, it's a failure. Well, actually, there's a tremendous learning that, you're able to skip other tests based on what you found on some tests that, that didn't work. Right. It's just amazing. Let me ask you, what books have inspired your work and career? Early in my career, I read a lot of biographies. I was inspired by just a lot of just successful people biographies. Sometimes I was depressed, like when I read like Ted Turner's or a couple people <laughs> who sort of kind of got to a point where they didn't like life very much after their success. So it was good to, good to kind of keep that in mind. But some of the things that have been more directly impactful in my, in my day-to-day business, um, things like Cialdini, I, I love just understanding sort of basic human principles of how, how decisions are made. And you go through all of those in your book a couple times. Yeah, we, we definitely- so interesting. Reference them and predictably irrational, I think, has got some some similar kind of bend to it. Uh, I I mentioned um, the upstarts, so Brad Stone. I, I I love again, it's these case studies. So whether it's 
you know, early in my career reading the biographies or later reading sort of the stories of various companies. And we actually wrote a bunch of stories of companies before we did this book. We, we did a different one where we just broke down and studied how different companies had, had uh, grown. And then like other things like presenting to win. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but just you know, things, things around um, presenting or like tactical things that I may be doing at a given point. Million dollar consulting is really useful uh, when I was doing some consulting. But yeah, so there's, there's a lot of, a lot of books that I, that I really like. Yeah, that's interesting. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Well, there's, there's one that I have ordered that's, I'm going to have pretty soon called Digital Sense. Uh, that's just, that's just come out. And what kind of jumped at, out at me about that book is they're talking about MarTech and, and social where a lot of books talk about that, but there's this big emphasis on customer experience. And so I'm curious to sort of see where they go with the, those, the combination of those three things in this book. Yeah. How best can listeners learn more about you and the book? The book, we have a page about the book on a, a website at growthhacker.com. So no S on there. My business is growthhackers.com. So it could be a little bit confusing there. But even if you go to Growth Hackers, you'll see a, a link to the book. And then social for, for Twitter, I'm pretty active on there. So at Sean Ellis. Yeah, those are probably the, the best ways to, to get in touch with me. Okay. We'll make sure to include links to all of that stuff at this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Sean, I would have been happy to have done a three-hour <laughs> interview because we really didn't get through so much of this. But I think this is one of those books going to help rewire a, a generation of marketers' brains. And I think that any marketer that might one day be interested in, you know, that might be interested in a long, successful career in marketing or maybe even becoming the CEO, they're going to want to read Hacking Growth. I appreciate that, Douglas. Thank you. The name of the book is Hacking Growth, How Today's Fastest Growing Companies Drive Breakout Success. The authors are Sean Ellis and Morgan Brown. Sean, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you very much, Douglas. And that closes the book on episode 121 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if your next event needs some inspiration and entertainment, I'd be happy to present to your group key insights from over 100 marketing and sales books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. To contact me, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, Marketing Book. I look forward to hearing from you. And please join us next time as we welcome Barry Feldman to the show to talk about the new book he has co-authored with Seth Price, The Road to Recognition, the A to Z guide to personal branding for accelerating your professional success in the age of digital media. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.